joined by Dr. Brett Alderman, life coach and author of Symptom, Symbol, and the Other Language. Our discussion with Brett will be followed by Q&A, but until then, we ask you to turn off your video for the discussion portion of this event. Uh, thank you very much. Okay, so welcome, Brett. Thank Hi, you for joining thanks us today. for having me on. Um, so your book, Symptom, Symbol, and the Other of Language, this explores the so-called linguistic turn through a Jungian lens. Why did you decide to write a book on language? Uh, well, uh, I understood after a lot of reading and investigation that what really is at the heart of what's now called postmodernism is a new way of looking at language. And the linguistic turn is where it all begins, really. So I, I thought that if I could really get at some of the key questions that the linguistic turn uh, deals with, then I could really get at the heart of postmodernism in a really condensed sort of efficient way, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. How would you describe the linguistic turn when did that happen over what time period and why? So the linguistic turn is a movement in philosophy, humanities, social sciences that starts, it really comes to, it really fully blossoms in the 20th century. You could, you could, you know, predate it in some way, but it, it really comes to the fore in 20th century with writers like Heidegger and Wittgenstein um, later on, Derrida, Foucault, Richard Rorty, who are the three people that I really focus on. But in general, the linguistic turn is a, is a way of um, looking at language and looking at how it, how, how it um, creates meaning and how, in a lot of ways, language um, sort of creates our very sense of what we perceive to be real or true. And... Uh, yeah, that's, that's the, the most concise answer I can give. So there's a tension that I think that you highlight in the book, um, and there's a tension between the proposition that language is derived from the world versus uh, the world is derived from language, right? Yeah. And that's kind of an inversion of what you might say common sense would tell us. Do you think this inversion is what you might say at, at the heart of a cultural shift that maybe might, might be viewed as kind of a cultural confusion in some way in which we're sort of confused about what language is, what's real and why is this shift happening maybe? Why, why, would, that, why would that inversion be appealing or gain traction for any reason because it seems counterintuitive right yeah yeah well first of all i mean i think you really put your finger on like really the nub of the issue and really what i was trying to get at in the book that's kind of the central issue that everything else sort of you know uh, circumambulates or works mm -hmm. around 
So first, I want to kind of define that inversion a little bit more, um, and then I'll try to answer the second question. So like kind of a traditional understanding of linguistic reference is that you have a perception, something presents itself to you, and then later you represent it in language. So first there's a perception of a phenomena, and then what you say is sort of presenting it yet again. That's how you communicate something. The linguistic turn, or at least, well, the linguistic turn kind of makes that whole simple explanation kind of problematic. And in a case like Jacques Derrida, founder of deconstruction, he, he inverts it and he really says, no, this isn't the case. First, it's the representation. And then from that, we kind of get the illusion that there's a perception, that there's a primary something or something there. Uh, a primary perception or something there. So, um, and there are several sort of philosophical ramifications of this inversion that maybe we can get into later. But as far as like the motivation for that, or uh, that's complicated. I talk about the motivation in terms of the myth of Prometheus. And I think humans have this natural urge to want to kind of steal power from the gods, steal their fire. Um, we have this natural urge to say, look, I am in the one who's in control of my life. I am self-determinate. I am not subject to forces that are greater than my, myself. And so um, we, in effect, kind of try to steal the fire from the gods. We kind of try to overcome nature, overcome any sense that there's something given that I'm just subject to as by virtue of being a human being. And so, um, you know, for me, the linguistic term, and there's a lot of different ways we could think about it, but I think particularly in deconstruction, deconstructive postmodernism, it's kind of like the latest iteration of that Promethean myth and that Promethean urge, which is simultaneously necessary and has its has its own dangers. I wanted to hop in here and expand a little bit more on the Promethean myth, because I really love that you brought that into the book. And um, for those who don't know the myth, of course, Prometheus steals fire from the gods, he gives it to man, and he is thus punished, um, you know, for all eternity, more or less, um, by having his, what is it, I believe his liver, um, yes. that's eaten um, by an eagle every day and then regrown. Um, but when I think about Prometheus, I think a lot about his embodiment of the, the trickster archetype, mm -hmm. which makes him this really mercurial being kind of moving between the boundaries of mortal and immortal, um, passing that knowledge and power of the gods onto man. Mm -hmm. um, but his liberation, at least in some versions of the myth, comes from the hands of Hercules. And I just... Mm -hmm. 
I wanted to follow this thread because Hercules, of course, is half man and half God. And it brings to mind this idea that a bridging between our archetypal nature or our godlike nature um, and our flawed humanness might be what actually helps us like transmute the, the transgressions of Prometheus mm-hmm. or in, maybe in other words, um, it's like the establishing and maintaining of that ego self axis that might allow us to transcend this tendency towards um, um, you know, going against the gods or going against instinct and nature. And I, I just wanted to know, do you have any thoughts on this? Does that make sense to you? It, it makes plenty of sense. And I, uh, and I like the read. And mm. just hearing that, I, I, I'm looking back and thinking, well, wow, maybe I should have brought that out too. I didn't, I didn't talk too much about who saves Prometheus from his punishment. I was more focused on kind of the nature of the punishment itself um, and the fact that Prometheus is tied to a rock, which means tied to the earth. Because for me in deconstruction and deconstructive postmodernism, there's such a strong um, disavowal of the very idea of nature and our earthiness and our animal nature that I just wanted to really focus on on that and, and the idea that, okay, if you steal the fire from the gods and you disavow nature, well, the punishment corresponds to the sin and the punishment is going to be that you're gonna be kind of nailed to the earth and have to suffer your own animal nature. But getting back to your idea of Hercules being kind of the, the savior figure in that, that makes sense because then, then it would seem like a a very self-aware resolution of this tension where you've got like, you know, the absolute truth of the gods and then the absolute defiance of human beings who don't want to be subject to it. And and in in the image of a demigod, of course, there's some sort of a reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I think Hercules is such a flawed character just Mm. to expand on his mythology, but when we trace his story, we recognize that his complicated relationship with um, the archetypes, um, you know, with Hera especially, takes him on this path of redemption through his labors. But even through that, you know, his, his humanness still comes out, his tendency to fall into, uh, you know, his rages and his instinctual behavior. But ultimately, he does try to maintain a more dynamic relationship between, you know, his father um, with Zeus um, and with Hera and other gods. And I think that it maybe speaks to a way for us to look through that mythopoetic lens and ask ourselves, how can we continue to be in relationship to our instincts, to nature, to the archetypes, and not take it for granted? Because I think when you do, that's when kind of Hera comes down you know, with like the rage and, and he goes yeah. crazy, you know, or Zeus comes down with a lightning bolt and destroys you. And I guess to sort of ground this even further, it's like, how can we maintain this relationship with this more powerful instincts and not fall into that more Promethean style consciousness where we believe that we really have power over this aspect of psyche? Mm-hmm. And I mean, he's a good figure in this regard also because he had such a troubled relationship with all of the goddesses. I mean, he really receives their wrath 
And yet, at least according to certain uh, versions of Herculean stories, he eventually does get initiated into the Eleusian mysteries. So he does get initiated into the feminine. So he's kind of an image of kind of almost a prototypical, almost machistic sort of um, masculine um, mentality that after struggling a great deal with the feminine eventually does learn how to exist in some sort of a um, symbiotic workable relationship to it, which I can relate to. That's, I, I, and I love the myth. I love Hercules myth to begin with. So something I, that I like about this, this book, I didn't, I was not able to get all the way through it, I must admit, but um, I like how you took on this sort of like postmodern deconstruction of language, this pattern and this kind of cultural shift that we're seeing, but you turned it in, into sort of a myth, like you mythologized this pattern in a way that I think is really interesting. And I like that, that kind of bridging of different worlds. Um, what inspired you to do that, to take this kind of approach? Well, I knew that a lot of people who were probably smarter than myself and who had a much firmer background in philosophy, linguistics, philosophy of language had already approached these ideas and they had approached the ideas sort of through, uh, through logos, basically trying to kind of dissect, take apart, make counter arguments, addressing the, the claims of these thinkers um, kind of just directly based on like their explicit meaning. I was getting a PhD in depth psychology when I was writing about this stuff. This is my a uh, a rewriting of my doctoral dissertation. So I wanted to bring a particularly depth psychological approach to it. And I also wanted, I mean, for me, that meant um, an, an approach that would recognize symbol, symptom, myth, uh, an approach that would allow me to bring to bear not just my rational mind, but also my intuition, my imagination, my sensation, my emotion. And I had a lot of, um, a lot of emotional reaction to these thinkers, you know, uh, like I really felt a certain antipathy and annoyance with um, Foucault and Derrida and Richard Rorty and a lot of thinkers that were would be called postmodern. And so on another level, just approaching these ideas in terms of symptom, symbol, myth, allowed me to also kind of work my counter-transference because as soon as you start thinking of something as being symptomatic, if you're working within a Jungian framework, then you have to say, okay, it might indicate where something is kind of messed up, where there's some unhealed wound, there's something that needs to be worked through. But in the symptom, there's also some sort of a healthy impulse and so by framing things the way I did, it allowed me to, to keep asking myself, 
okay, what's the healthy impulse here that these thinkers are getting at? And at the same time, I could still critique them because I still think that they're really mistaken and they have some foundational assumptions that are just, as far as I can tell, wrong. But it allowed me to move beyond a mere um, hatchet job or, you know, um, like projection of my own shadow onto them. And so it allowed for a much more complex understanding. Uh, and it allowed me to get it, what I kind of feel is kind of the deeper meaning kind of behind a lot of the ideas. You think part of the problem with, I don't want to say combating these ideas, but addressing these ideas is that it's almost just reinforcing sort of the egoic out in space uh, yeah. realm is like the more you kind of address these ideas very intellectually, you're just kind of staying up there and the, the mythologizing is actually in some ways a way to reground, to re-embody. And yeah. I, I can see how that's lacking. I mean, something that I think Alyssa and I do well tackling these concepts is trying to bring them back down to earth in some way because people get lost in the void of intellectual discussion and there needs to be some sort of tether that kind of brings things back down. And I can see how your approach to, to your book does that it's an attempt and that's why i'm so intrigued by the approach had my approach been different i think i would have gotten completely lost in the ether yeah. and i would have become exactly what i so disliked you know right exactly disembodied intellectual saying lots of highfalutin complex things that sound sophisticated and completely dissociated from my body um so yeah, thank you. Thank you for highlighting that. Cause for yeah. me, that's the real, that's the real genius of the work. If I can say that there's a genius to my work, it's that simply framing these things in sort of a mythical, through a mythic lens, thinking of them symbolically, not just taking certain ideas at face value. Yeah, we, we need more of that. Um, so I wanted to touch upon something else that you, that you highlighted um, just now, which is the idea that there is a kind of a, I'm not sure how you phrase it, but like a healthy pattern behind the deconstruction of language. There's yeah. something in there that's good, let's say. Yeah. And um, I guess, what do, you, what do you think that is as far as, you know, uh, Foucault, Derrida, Rorty, what are they doing that's actually virtuous or healthy or good? What are they getting at that's like actually helpful? Well, I mean, they're bringing attention to the fact that whatever you say about a, a human universal or a universal truth, you're saying from a particular moment in time and you're embedded in a particular culture and a particular language. So they're really bringing attention to the fact that any, any statement about an objective truth is said by a particular subject you know, and so they're, and that's important. And I think, I think, you know, Jung does something similar in his own way. Um, so, I mean, that's really good. And it, they, they both draw attention. I think Foucault does this a lot in just pointing out that what we believe to be true or important evolves quite a bit over time. Um, and sometimes there are these radical shifts in what we, we believe to be true or important. Um, 
and yet, you know, a couple hundred years from now, we'll be seeing things in quite a different way. So, you know, they, they do highlight sort of the, the relativity of culture, which, I, you know, we do have to um, acknowledge, especially today when we're so um, directly in contact with other cultures, other ways of thinking about things, and we have such a, a um, easy access to how other times have thought about things. So that's 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 a positive. This feels like you're bringing in that. Uh the kind of idea of the spirit of the times versus the spirit of the depths, which you touch upon in your book. And to me, this seems like the, the further discussion that comes, of course, from Jung's Red Book, where you see him in this extended tension of being an individual who's so grounded in the moment, in the culture, in the times, in his relationship to his job and um you know, his status, but then he goes into the depths of his own being and into that sort of e eternal, timeless space where the unconscious kind of unfolds in front of us. And in many ways, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I would love to know if this book and this effort really is your part in bridging the, the sort of the spirit of the times of what these deconstructionist postmodern thinkers, you know, touched upon, but then trying to bring it back into relationship with the depths. And did you feel like going through this process yourself took you into similar confrontations that maybe Jung's Red Book did for him as well? Well, in hearing the way you frame it, um, my answer is yes. I really, I really love how you frame that. And I really was trying to, um, bridge something of you know what i'm seeing in the spirit of the times with the depths um and but i hadn't yeah i, I don't know there's something in the way you're framing that i hadn't i hadn't quite made the link but my my short answer to that is is yes um the thing is we're always tempted to think that we're so so new and so different and it's true we are new and different but it's not an absolute new and it's not an absolute different it's a relative new and a relative different so we're always having to sort of i think find ways of linking ourselves with the past and seeing that you know we have our new versions of something that was also before us um, that was part of the impulse of, you know, talking about the Promethean myth, which is a very old myth and has different iterations. I mean, I call it the Promethean myth, but I also talk about, you know, when Eve steals fruit in the Garden of Eden, you know, that's a similar, there's a similar mythic structure there where you're, where you're um, rebelling against the gods, saying, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, and you acquire knowledge and this is important, valuable, it's part of who we are as human, but at the same time, you're going to suffer for it, because every step in greater awareness also implies a certain amount of, like, suffering the consequences of that awareness. Yeah, it brings into this mind this delicate balance of 
hubris and how far we can kind of shoot into that realm of the archetypes. Um, you know, Icarus is another myth that comes to mind or even the Tower of Babel is like when we fly too close to the sun or we just keep building ourselves higher and higher, eventually something greater than ourselves will, will, will strike us down and bring us back into balance. And uh, I think that that happens in our lives in different ways when we're maintaining more of that relationship to the spirit of the times or we're in a one-sided ego space and we become, you know, uh, plagued with ailments or some sort of like neurotic symptom, or we have physical issues and all these different aspects that really, uh, kind of are trying to remind us, as you say, like what's what's really the meaning behind the symptom here, mm -hmm. that there's something much deeper. And I think maybe as a collective, we are experiencing the symptomatic effects of, of dismantling these inherent psychic infrastructures and how then are we embodying the myth of Icarus or, you know, yeah. seeing the destruction of the Tower of Babel. Um, myth here gives us so much content to work with. And I just think what you've been able to do by bringing this in is so important. Um, the question really then is, can we receive it? You know, are we ready to really take that in? And um, I don't know, what do you think? My answer is I really don't know. And I'm, I'm worried that we can't, I'm worried that we won't. I'm worried that, um, you know, like Icarus, we just fall to the earth and crash and burn. Um, and what will come after that, I don't know if, I mean, I am worried about, for example, a, a, a um, complete environmental degradation because we're just so enamored of our own autonomy and our own independence. I'm worried about that. I'm also worried about, you know, to go back to the, the story of Babel, which I think is so relevant to a lot of the themes that I discuss, I'm worried that our language will just so disintegrate that we'll just be babbling at each other without any sense of what the other person is actually trying to get at. Um, and that is something I see happening so much with so many intellectual disputes where you have intelligent people who can string together sets of very complex words, but they're just talking past each other and there's no mutual sense of a, of a shared code, a shared understanding and a shared identification, a sense of, okay, you and I are kindred. We're trying to get at the same truth or the same ideas or, or something. So yeah, um, I'm worried. Yeah, um, we have a question from Sam uh, that we wanna just offer some time for him. So Sam, do you wanna unmute and ask your question to Brett? Uh, sure, and uh, Brett, I think it's really cool that you're kind of bringing together uh, depth psychology uh, way of looking into dialogue with more kind of postmodern um, analysis of language. Uh, it's, it, I don't think that happens nearly enough. So um, it's really, really awesome that you're, you're bringing these, these worlds together. And I'm, I'm very curious if you've um, encountered uh, Owen Barfield's work on 
the uh, development of language in relation to the evolution of consciousness and whether and like have a sense if you have of how this maybe comes into dialogue with these more kind of deconstructive uh, linguistic um, analyses. I have one of his books on my bookshelf and I have, um, you know, perused it a bit but I, I can't say that I'm very familiar with his work. So I don't have a lot that I could intelligently say about it. Sam, could you sum it up for us maybe? Um, yeah, sure. So um, Owen Barfield, almost most of his writing has, has been on, on more or less the same topic. His book, um, Saving the Appearances is, um, a really important book and he was a philologist so he studied the development of language over time and made conclusions about the evolution of consciousness based on what he was observing hmm. um and it's in some ways i would say it's very different than the the postmodern orientation to language because it's it's I, I maybe you could say asemiotic meaning it's not that language is the more or less arbitrary assignment of, of meaning in the way that that would be a sign, but is, uh, Barfield was, was aligned with Jung in that they both really looked at Le, uh, Levi Brule's work on, and that idea of participation mystique. Mm -hmm. But what, what Barfield is noting is that over time, you'll find in language that a single word which uh, you know they would call that a signifier in you know, the the maybe Sasurian or um, uh, Derrida orientation, is that a single word would have what we would both now regard as like a concrete meaning, meaning mm -hmm. it 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 refers to something physical and tangible in the world, and also a metaphorical meaning, and right. like maybe uh, like the prototype of this would be like pneuma or ruach, meaning both wind and spirit. Um, but what Barfield's noting is that over time, there's this kind of diffraction or bifurcation where suddenly now there's, there's differentiation. Now, now there's a word for a concrete thing and then a different word for um, a metaphorical thing. And what Barfield was essentially saying is that there's actually a relationship in the process that gives rise to the split between subject and object and mm -hmm. the diffraction of logos, which is not just arbitrary. It's not that we are immersed in a concrete world that we gradually abstract from, but that actually, no, the world in itself is poetic, it's metaphorical, it's, it's archetypally saturated, and then yeah. eventually diffracts uh, into uh, what we experience as the concrete world, quote unquote, out there, and the metaphorical world, quote unquote, in here, um, mm -hmm. that there's actually, there, that, uni that original unitary condition is primary, and the world is symbolically saturated through and through. Yeah. Um, and this is where there's just such a different ontological foundation from um, yeah. the kind of postmodern turn, which would yeah. just say we're just kind of immersed in this world and we, you know, we just have to throw like arbitrary signifiers onto everything and we can't actually uh, locate any vital ground of meaning um, yeah. anywhere. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And I can really tell just in your explanation that you, you, you're really familiar with the, with the literature and some of the, and the, some of the what for me are essential differences. And um, I really love this way of establishing that, you know, there's a concrete meaning 
associated with the signifier. And then there's a metaphoric meaning associated with the same signifier. And yet there's also a relationship between the concrete and the metaphoric. And this for me is essential. And this is, I think, what I, what I really see being just dramatically um, dissociated in the particular understanding of language that someone like Derrida puts forth, because there's a sense of everything being arbitrary, to use a word that you did, but also just the sense that the metaphors arise kind of just by virtue of a particular linguistic tradition, but they're not really grounded in anything. And what I keep coming back to is that the metaphors, if you think them, kind of think them backwards and you ground them in a lot of the concrete reference, they make perfect sense. You know, I'll, I'll try to give an example. It's like, you can read a text and, and if you're in a deconstructive mindset, you might find every place that the author uses the word light and then say, well, every time they use the word light, they're associating it with, you know, truth, beauty, um, you know, whatever, whatever else. And then you can kind of do a deconstructive reading and say, well, you know, they're arbitrarily giving privilege to light over dark or making a, a connection between light and truth and beauty that um, isn't, uh, is, is essentially arbitrary or built on sort of these nefarious power drives. That's more Foucault. And my point is that, well, no, um, if you really, if you really consult your visceral perceptual experience, it's kind of clear why there would be a relationship between light and knowledge. Now there's probably a relationship between darkness and knowledge too, but it's kind of a different type of knowledge. The, the fact is, is that we see better in the dark and our sight is one way in which we know the world. So there's sort of this inherent implicit relationship between the literal meaning of the word light and all of these other metaphoric expressions that have built around it. They might change over time and change according to cultures, but they're not completely arbitrary. The relationship is in the broadest sense of the word archetypal. Um, I should go back and read some more Owen Barfield because that, I, I love how you, how you put forth his ideas. They make a lot of sense to me. We keep trying to hire Sam to join us on the golden shadow but he commands too high of a pay rate so i, I want to read sam's book if, I know. He has, if he has one out there or if he wants to write one we're waiting for it forthcoming um yeah i, I really recommend uh barfield it's uh, just i i think you you all from what i hear you just already really stand in a very similar place uh to him so i appreciate your work very much dr alderman thank thanks thank you so admittedly, I was just um, Googling um, Barfield and I see on the Wikipedia page that he was part of this literary society with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. And it says here that 
um, it's through Barfield's work that um, both Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis both realize the importance of myth and metaphor uh, as a central place in language and literature. And it just sort of like, like my mind's exploding a little bit. Yeah, the inklings um, aren't exactly. Because oh, especially, you know, when we look at Chronicles of Narnia or we look at um, the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit, we see such depth of archetypal expression that has had such a huge impact on our culture. And to know that there is this direct line between understanding the, the complexities of where how language is sort of born out of these psychic infrastructures, these archetypal spaces. And then that can then translate into such powerful work that to this day still holds us in its grip. And it just makes me feel that this work and continuing this discussion is so important because we place aside the importance of myth and metaphor and symbolism in our life, or we just kind of take this more surface level cursory relationship to it and maybe churn out, you know, low level Disney style movies and not to say all Disney is bad even, but, you know, how can we come back into relationship with this um, aspect of our psyche and mm -hmm. continue to express it outward? Because I don't know, in some ways, I feel like that might be the, the way forward to really um, grip the people is through the story, right? You know, we can't just like lecture and hit them over the head with these ideas. I think that more logos approach won't work for everybody. But when we watch these movies or we read these books, I think it just constellates something incredibly powerful and deep within us. And just to see that connection there to me is really fantastic. And it, it, it continues to put your work in a lot of perspective for me, uh, Brett, because I think it's just a really important conversation that we need to keep having. What, what you're saying and what Sam was saying about Barfield just really reminds me of how we have a tendency to say, well, that's just metaphor. And Jung's work and, you know, Owen Barfield's work really speaks to the idea that metaphor is at the very foundation of the cosmos. I mean, it's, it's not just a way of speaking. It is, it is what we are already always already in and not just because we use language, but there's, there's something to, I mean, to keep going back to this word, archetypal. Um, and, and archetype means metaphor. There's something archetypal about the, the cosmos. God, that's, that's way out there, but you know, I, I, it's what I keep coming back to. All right, um, this might be a, a bit of a segue, but um... I feel like the deconstruction of language is partially kind of like an egoic narcissism in some sense. There is sort of like the ego wants to keep confirming itself as being the creator of, yeah. like, of being God. Like reality is what I say it is. Yeah. There's that. I also feel like the deconstruction of language um, could also be something that people know is actually disingenuous, but they're sort of weaponizing it yeah. for their agenda um what's your perspective on that how much how much is this the linguistic turn this postmodern shift just 
the ego essentially masturbating versus uh, politics, people trying to just deconstruct uh, our understanding of things because it, it helps their agenda. Well, I don't, I don't see a great difference between the two. I mean, okay. the sort of egoic um, masturbation, you know, and narcissism, I yeah. think goes along with that political mindset. And, um, you know, I, I actually, in the, this new book I'm working on, I actually do talk a little bit about intellectual masturbation because there is actually a sense in a lot of these um, thinkers, particularly Derrida, who, who that's who I'm writing about right now, where there's something autoerotic about it, sort of narcissistic, sort of self-enclosed, you know, words refer to other words, refer to other words. It's all just sort of a language game. It's all just sort of a, an intellectual fantasy. Um, and that fantasy also happens to be very functional for, you know, just taking apart other people's worldviews. Um, I'm glad you're drawing attention to this sort of um, narcissistic um, use of deconstructive ideas, because I'm just seeing it play out in the culture in a huge way. And often by, you know, people who, who, who've never read Derrida, never read Foucault, don't, don't know about these ideas, really have just learned a couple key um, turns in an argument that they can make in order to kind of hit other people with this like big epistemic bludgeon that says, no, <laughs> you're wrong. So, uh, yeah, I... Yeah, I mean, I see this like even in my my peers, which has surprised me. Um, of because part of the result I see of the kind of deconstructing mindset is that it doesn't lead to greater understanding; it just leads to nihilism. Yeah, that's yeah. a pattern of like, well, actually, you can't really know anything, and nothing's real. And I mean, who says that idea is correct? Like everything's relative, and it becomes very frustrating. And then you start to feel like, well, I have no idea what's going on at all anymore yeah. yeah i can see that as um it's sad and it's i think it's very destructive and you can see why there might be certain forces certain malicious forces at work that want that to happen mm -hmm. because the more confused people are the more easily you can kind of manipulate them maybe mm -hmm. or play upon their sort of unconscious anxieties of like well i feel a lot of chaos in my life because i can't understand anything who can come around and tell me what's real? Yeah. But I yeah. see that's part of the pattern as well. Yeah. And that has been, I mean, people like Foucault and Derrida. And Derrida really is the founder of what specifically formally is known as deconstruction. I mean, the critique of their work, which started to really come out in the early 70s, has repeatedly um, been the critique that there's something nihilistic about it because they just provide a way of, of just dismantling and disempowering any sense of inherent meaning in anything. And so you are sort of left with, okay, well now what? 
if all ideals and all presumed truths could be deconstructed, I mean, who cares what, I mean, there's just something that's, that's nihilistic about it. And there's also, I think, because of that, there's something very self-contradictory about it. Because if you say a statement like, well, there is no truth, well, the, the obvious logical um, question that arises is, well, can that be true? You know, and then, well, no, it can't. Well, then you get into this whole sort of logical conundrum that just seems to make the original assumption that there is no truth to be kind of logically just foolish. Mm -hmm. um, and not just logically foolish, but I think psychologically dangerous, um, which is really what I'm more, even more focused on. Mm -hmm. yeah. How do you, how do you feel like the, the internet has affected this pattern? The internet it's, has definitely disembodied us quite yeah. a bit. That's part yeah. of the problem, right? Is like leaving nature, leaving the body. Yeah. We're just floating heads. We're just floating egos that are just yeah. kind of rubbing up against each other. Um, how has the internet exacerbated this? Is it getting worse? It's put, it's put it on steroids. Because if you think about it, when we're online, when we're on a screen, all of our attention is focused on representations. Now they might be words, they might be images, but that's where our, our attention and our libido is directed. And so that becomes what is real. So again, what, what representation becomes more real than the, kind of the immediacy of our, of our surroundings, of our bodies, you know, we start to identify more with our avatars or, or, or our Facebook profiles than, you know, ourselves. And there is that, that process of disembodiment. You know, if you're, if you're thoroughly enthralled with, with what you're seeing online, you're probably not aware of the way your feet feel touching the ground or the fact that maybe your back has been aching for the last several hours or, you know, you're just, there's so many ways in which you're literally not aware of your, the immediacy of your physical body. And you're, you're, and you're also really not aware of kind of those, those subtle images and thoughts that might be percolating under the surface because you're enthralled by this thing on the screen. It, yeah, it's, I think it's, it's just, it, to use a hackneyed metaphor, it's, it's put it on steroids. Yeah, I also, there's a, there's a problem with when the world you're immersed in is entirely virtual, you don't have the normal um, evidence that tells you your idea is bad. Yeah. Right? So if we, if we are in, let's say, meat space or, or real life, when we're actually interacting with each other and we're faced with more kind of physical problems, you have a bad idea, you test it, it doesn't yeah. work. Reality yeah. says, no, sorry, that, that's a bad idea, it doesn't work. But in virtual space on the internet, increasingly, we can have bad ideas and there's nothing to tell us it's a bad idea. Right. It's the opposite, there's just, there's just people confirming that bad idea over and over again. I have this idea about the world. 
I can't test it. I'm just going to throw it out on the internet and everyone confirms it. And that's yeah. part of this problem is increasingly moving in this direction towards uh, the sort of facts of reality, the, the sort of immutable forces of nature aren't really at play in the virtual right. world. And so we fly off into space further and further. Anyways, yeah. it's scary, scary to think about. It's very scary. I mean, online, I self-identify as a guy who can bench press 300 pounds, but I go to the gym and it just doesn't happen. You know, yeah. it's like, but people aren't metaphorically speaking, going to the gym. They're not like, okay, trying to test right. the hypotheses. Um, and so we do get a very, very ungrounded sense of reality our narratives we don't we just don't even have the opportunity to really question whether or not they're true or real yeah um and it is i think a truly dangerous place to be in yeah yeah i imagine you can only bench like 275 in reality right that that's about it believe it or not yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right uh sam you have a follow-up question do you want to ask your question sam uh, yeah, sure. I this this came up as I was, um, you know, yeah, he, you know, listening to these critiques of of the postmodern uh, condition, all of which I I agree with, um, and you know, like Nietzsche often called like the father of postmodernism for good reasons. But this whole you know that statement that he's famous for that, you know. Um, you say that there's only truth and I say that truth is precisely what there isn't there's only interpretation and then it's like okay but how did you Nietzsche how did you transcend that condition to, to make that statement how did you get on the outside to make that diagnosis um, but I, I, I often find it also the vantage point I take when I'm wanting to critique postmodernism is like, well, you know, we've fallen away from like recognizing a, a cosmos that's archetypally saturated with inherent meaning. Um, and so really the postmodern turn like got away from that. It's like, it's this mistake, it veered off. It somehow like unmoored itself from this deeper ground and logos. But then, so am I saying that then actually the the flowering of postmodernism isn't itself significant in some sense it doesn't have like a meaning within a process that might itself be archetypal in nature um and i, I wrestle with that because i i do think that we can kind of get maybe get stuck in in the postmodern process and unmoor ourselves in a way if we don't um, at least participate in the process that's unfolding but i i'm just so i guess this really um leads leads to me me to the question i'm really curious what everyone thinks about this but like is postmodernism like this arbitrary uh, it's in some ways this is this is treating it in a postmodern way like is is the birth of postmodernism a kind of arbitrary unnecessary contingent fall um out of uh what is otherwise a kind of logos infused cosmos or is it itself um kind of signifying something that is meaningful within an unfolding process yeah i mean my answer is it's it, it is the latter and that's why i i use sort of a mythic framework i mean i i think that postmodernism is sort of a a stage within our own collective individuation um and it it is allowing to it's kind of like as an individual, there comes a point in your life when you can really 
self-reflect on your participation in in your creation of meaning right and i mean that's kind of a, a lot of late adolescence might be that um so i do think of it as it's in and of itself sort of part of an archetypal process um in my current book uh, which is dealing more with deconstruction specifically just derrida and i'm looking at the puer myth you know i i, I do i think a really good job at saying the the deconstructive attitude is in and of itself perennial and archetypal there's something that we just keep we just keep doing this over and over again where we like say no all of the inherent structures are just arbitrary and ridiculous and they're sort of um, um, unwarranted impositions of that damn patriarchal authority Zeus, you know, but that attitude has been around for so long. So in a lot of ways, deconstruction is just yet another iteration of that. And at the same time, it's a bit new, but I do think that if we recognize it and if we bring self-awareness to it, we can see that even this deconstruction of meaning can have, um, it is a stage in our development that hopefully we will pass through um and with a certain amount of uh grace and hopefully we'll, we'll survive <laughs> my response Love that. Um, i agree with everything that brett said and uh I, I think i'm interpreting your question correctly sam but um the deconstructive pattern is just part of the resurrection pattern right so you can also look at it as like the dialectic in some sense, but it's, it's, also, it's manifesting in all these different perspectives. The hero's journey in some sense is about going through deintegration in favor of resurrection to a, a higher complexity in yeah. some sense. And that's individuation, right? It's that upward spiral. So I do see postmodernism as being a necessary phase of deconstruction in favor of reconstruction in favor mm -hmm. of resurrection uh, in favor of getting to uh, a better place in some sense hopefully but the the deconstructive pattern can also fly off its hinges and just destroy everything that's possible yeah. and there can just be devastation catastrophe but uh i am on more of the optimistic side that that postmodernism actually is a good thing overall and it has its uh shadow elements of course but that we are hopefully heading towards a, a resurrection of sorts um so that's where i'm coming from hopefully yeah fingers crossed all right so we're getting close to the top of the hour brett and we just wanted to offer you um, a couple moments with any closing words or to tell us a little bit more about your forthcoming book and where can people find your work uh people can go to aldermancoaching.com if they're interested in my coaching services um, they can go on Amazon or to Rutledge to look for my book, Symptoms, Symbol, and the Other of Language. Um, 
I'm working on, as I said, a new book that I'm hoping I will send to the publisher this year. I should be able to. Um, the subtitle of which is Eternal Youth and the Myth of Deconstruction, where I'm really, really honing in on Derrida specifically. And I'm going to throw in a little Judith Butler too. And uh, talking about uh, deconstructions through the Puer myth, the myth of the eternal youth, because there's there's uh, there's really a, a, a pretty explicit, visible antipathy of deconstruction towards anything that might be called structure or authority or tradition, and that's like typical Senex qualities, and that and it works perfectly with James Hillman's um, framing of the Pu'er as being uh, really um, in, in a battle with Senex. And I'm also going into Marie-Louise von Franz's reading because deconstruction also has a very antagonistic relationship with the idea of primordiality, which is, I think very much embodied in, in the mother goddess archetype, the primordial mother, sort of the the origins of everything, right? So um yeah, and I'm 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 really excited about it. I think I think I've really hit upon like the archetypal narrative that's really at the heart of something that's going on right now. Excellent. Well, Brett, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, let's give Brett a muted round of applause for sharing his wisdom. Um, we have some upcoming events at Golden Shadow. The first is going to be a week from today. That's going to be religion and living a symbolic life with Jason Smith. It'll be on Sunday, June 27th at 12 p.m. Pacific time. And then Murray Stein. The man himself will be coming on Saturday, July 10th. He's going to talk to us about Jungian thought in general. What was Jung's impact on the world? And right now, what's up with this surgence in uh, Jungian thought? Why is this becoming popular now? What does that mean? So Murray Stein will be here to talk with us. Those are both free. You can sign up at goldenshadow.org. Thank everyone for coming and we hope to see you next time. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash golden shadow org. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events or work one-on-one -on -one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.